Get out that handy pocket copy of the U.S. Constitution, I know you have one, and turn to Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8. That's where we'll spend a good deal of time on this episode of Many Things Considered, a podcast on politics and history. I'm Mark Johnson. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8, by the way, is generally referred to as the Emoluments Clause. Would you agree with me that the Emoluments Clause applies to the President of the United States? Well, the Emolument Clause applies. I guess the dispute is, and uh, the discussion is, is to, and to what extent does it apply, and how does it apply in a concrete situation? That was Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal questioning Attorney General-designate Jeff Sessions about this emoluments clause. You heard Sessions say that it does apply to the president. In this case, Donald J. Trump. Here's what the emoluments clause, sometimes referred to as the foreign emoluments clause, says. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of Congress, except for any present emolument, office, or title of any kind whatever from any king, prince, or foreign state. Emolument is the kind of word the Founding Fathers liked to use. It's from the Latin, meaning advantage or benefit, to derive something of benefit by virtue of the position you hold. You may have noticed that, uh, well, the emoluments clause doesn't normally come up in polite conversation. It's not as popular as, say, the First Amendment or that old crowd-pleaser, the Second Amendment. But since the once obscure provision of the Constitution has been in the news since the election of Donald Trump, Merriam-Webster, the dictionary people, say it has become the number one search term in its online dictionary. So let's hear it for... Emolument. Given President-elect Trump's extensive foreign business holdings... He's going to be at risk of benefiting from foreign governments from the moment he's sworn into office. That's Erwin Chemerinsky, the dean of the law school at the University of California, Irvine, and one of the nation's most respected and widely quoted authorities on the U.S. Constitution. He'll help us untangle the tangled story of the new president's business entanglements and how likely it is that Trump's business empire will complicate Trump's presidency. Part of the problem is that Trump's attitude is much more defiant than compliant. We'll also explore in this episode whether there has ever been anything approaching the kind of ethical and financial complications that Donald Trump carries with him into the Oval Office. The short answer is, well, sort of. Today I announce my active candidacy for the nomination by the Republican Party for the presidency of the United States. New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller there announcing his third run for President of the United States in 1968. Rockefeller was an enormously wealthy man. His grandfather was the guy who founded Standard Oil. But he never made it to the White House. He was too liberal, perhaps, too Eastern establishment, too patrician for the GOP of the 1960s. But Rockefeller did get close to the Oval Office, becoming only the second man appointed to be Vice President. That was in 1974. And how Rockefeller and the Congress handled his financial issues 
provide some valuable historical perspective on the present circumstances involving Donald Trump. And that, after all, is what we do here. Politics, history, and perspective. The theory is that by understanding history a little better, we understand the current world a little better. Thanks for listening to Many Things Considered. We're supported by Gallatin Public Affairs, which hosts the podcast on its website. And you'll find past episodes on the web at Many Things Considered. You can also follow my blog at the Johnson Post. And please send us an email or a Twitter post or a Facebook message. We'd love to hear from you. We could make deals in Russia very easily if we wanted to. I just don't want to because I think that would be a conflict. So I have no loans, no dealings, and no current pending deals. Now, Every president uh, since the 70s has oh, been gee, a never heard that. Oh, the gee, the I've never heard that. I've never heard that. You know, the only one that cares about my tax returns are the reporter. That, of course, was Donald Trump at a news conference where he outlined his approach to avoiding conflicts of interest in the White House and again refused to release his income tax returns, which presumably would shed a good deal of light on his businesses, his debts, etc. President Trump and the rest of us really face two big issues with regard to his financial empire. First, how does the president, any president for that matter, avoid conflicts of interest between his role as the president of the United States, where, for example, he'll be in charge of regulating a bank that might hold one of his loans? And second, how does he avoid having a problem running afoul of our favorite new clause, the emoluments clause? We'll get to that constitutional question in a moment. But first, here's Sherry Dillon, one of Trump's lawyers, who explained his plans to deal with that first issue, the conflict of interest, by having his two sons run his business empire through a trust while he's president, shielding him from some information about the business and employing an ethics advisor to vet and approve new business deals. President-elect Trump should not be expected to destroy the company he built. This plan offers a suitable alternative to address the concerns of the American people. And selling the entire Trump organization isn't even feasible. Some people have suggested that the president-elect sell the business to his adult children. This would require massive third-party debt sourced with multiple lenders whose motives and willingness to participate would be questioned and undoubtedly investigated. And if the president-elect were to finance the sale himself, he would retain the financial interests in the assets that he owns now. Some people have suggested that the Trump or- that President-elect Trump could bundle the assets and turn the Trump organization into a public company. Anyone who's ever gone through this extraordinarily cumbersome and complicated process knows that it is a non-starter. It is not realistic and it would be inappropriate for the Trump organization. Some people have suggested a blind trust. But you cannot have a totally blind trust with operating businesses. President Trump can't unknow he owns Trump Tower. And the press will make sure that any new developments at the Trump Organization are well publicized. Further, it would be impossible to find an institutional trustee that would be competent to run the Trump Organization. To say the least, that arrangement has not received rave reviews. Here's Noah Bookbinder, the head of the nonprofit group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. He appeared recently on MSNBC. 
the steps that he's talking about are woefully inadequate. First of all, he knows what his business interests are. Most of them have his name on them. Uh, so he knows what will be affected by tax decisions and foreign policy decisions and other decisions he's made. Secondly, his children have been uh, deeply involved in his campaign and now deeply involved in his transition. There's no reason to think there's going to be any meaningful separation between him and them. But so what's the solution then? So the solution's pretty simple. He needs to sell his business interests and put the proceeds in a real blind trust controlled by somebody outside of his family. Only when he does that can we have real confidence that the, his business interests are not going to affect his presidential decisions. Does that in, in some- and here's a fellow who really is right in the middle of all of this. I wish circumstances were different and I didn't feel the need to make public remarks today. You don't hear about ethics when things are going well. That's Walter Schaub speaking recently at the Brookings Institution in Washington. Schaub is the director of the Office of Government Ethics, an office created by Congress in 1978 in the wake of the Watergate scandal during the Nixon administration. That's an important detail to keep in mind as we go along here. When the OGE was established, it was designed to help executive branch employees, including those in the White House, avoid ethical problems. Stepping back from running his positions is meaningless from a conflicts of interest perspective. The presidency is a full-time job, and he would have had to step back anyway. The idea of setting up a trust to hold his operating businesses adds nothing to the equation. This is not a blind trust. It's not even close. I think Politico called this a half-blind trust, but it's not even halfway blind. The only thing it has in common with a blind trust is the label, trust. His sons are still running the business, and of course he knows what he owns. His own attorney said today that he can't unknow that he owns Trump Tower. The same is true of his other holdings. The idea of limiting direct communication about the business is wholly inadequate. That's not how a blind trust works. There's not supposed to be any information at all. Here, too, his attorney said something important today. She said he'll know about a deal if he reads it in the paper or sees it on TV. That wouldn't happen with a blind trust. In addition, the notion that there won't be new deals doesn't solve the problem of all the existing deals in businesses. The enormous stack of documents on the stage when he spoke shows just how many deals in businesses there are. A little government ethics lesson. Congress passed the Ethics in Government Act in 1978, at least in part because evidence surfaced of illegal campaign and financial practices during Richard Nixon's presidency. Nixon, of course, ended up resigning the presidency in 1974, still the only man to have done so. As Princeton scholar Julian Zellinger has noted, during the congressional hearings, that would be the Watergate hearings, there was massive evidence that the Nixon White House had made policy decisions that were related to campaign contributions. The hearings included dramatic stories of one administration official, G. Gordon Liddy, obtaining a briefcase with $83,000 in it, and the president then reversing policies because the milk industry had made campaign donations. It became clear, Zellinger wrote, that the lines separating policy and money were thin. That 1978 ethics law changed the behavior of every subsequent president, apparently until now. Since then, Presidents Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama all either established blind trusts or limited their investments to non-conflicting assets like diversified mutual funds, which are exempt under the conflict of interest law. 
Donald Trump and his lawyers have correctly pointed out that federal conflict of interest laws generally do not apply to the president and the vice president. You might wonder why they don't apply, but they don't. Still, by adopting the position that he has, and a vast bipartisan array of ethics experts agree on this, Trump may be setting himself up for really big problems. Again, here's the dean of the law school at the University of California, Irvine, Erwin Shemernsky. Donald Trump is the least transparent person to run for president in decades. We still don't have his tax returns. At the press conference on Wednesday, he said, no one but reporters cares. How are we going to ever be able to know what's profits without a full accounting, including his tax returns. So there remains the potential for a conflict of interest problem for the new president. And I should point out that White House ethics lawyers from both the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations have said repeatedly that Donald Trump's approach to handling the conflicts is woefully inadequate. We shall see, as they say, how all of this plays out. But now, what can our political history tell us about this conflict of interest issue when it involves an issue at the absolute highest levels of the government? I'm so glad you ask. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller, I, Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller, do solemnly swear, do solemnly swear. December 19, 1974, longtime New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller is sworn in as Vice President of the United States. Rockefeller, a Republican, was an enormously wealthy man. By one estimate, $1.3 billion in net worth, and that was in 1974 dollars. Let's see, uh, do the math quickly, more like $6.6 billion in today's money. Not Bill Gates' territory, but Rockefeller wasn't shopping at the dollar store either. By the way, that Rockefeller swearing in was televised by cameras that had been installed in the Senate chamber in anticipation of the televised Senate impeachment trial of Richard Nixon, a trial, of course, that never happened. Nixon had resigned, Gerald Ford became president, and he appointed Rockefeller. And just to underscore that point, there was a good deal of corruption, financial, political, and otherwise, with Nixon and his administration that led to that series of events making Nelson Rockefeller vice president. Congress did an immense amount of investigation of Rockefeller's finances. Both the House and Senate finally voted to confirm him as vice president, Democrats controlled both houses of Congress at the time, but only after exhaustive hearings and much, much consideration. Rockefeller's finances were at the core of the concern. In the Senate, the nomination was considered by the Rules Committee, chaired by Nevada Senator Howard Cannon. Senator Cannon, as your committee begins to investigate Nelson Rockefeller as because he's been named to be the next vice president, you're going to run into the fact that the Rockefeller fortunes permeate almost every part of American business life. Under such conditions, can there be a conflict of interests, or do you just uh, have to ignore all that? I think this is one of the most serious problems that the committee has to deal with because the conflict of interest statutes do not apply to the president or the vice president, though they do apply to officers and uh, uh, people 
working in the executive branch, and they also apply to members of Congress. But this is one of the big decisions that we're going to have to air to the American public and let them decide whether or not a full disclosure is adequate to cover this problem. From CBS News in Washington. A clip there from the CBS News program Face the Nation. Senator Howard Cannon being questioned by CBS correspondent George Herman. The essential question with Nelson Rockefeller in 1974, and you heard Senator Cannon touch on it there, was whether full disclosure of his assets was adequate protection against conflicts of interest, or whether Rockefeller had to go further, create a blind trust perhaps, or even divest of many of his holdings. And here's where this story connects to the issues of the moment. Here again is Donald Trump's attorney, Sherry Dillon. As you know, the business empire built by President-elect Trump over the years is massive, not dissimilar to the fortunes of Nelson Rockefeller when he became vice president. But at that time, no one was so concerned. Whoa, wait just a minute. Not quite accurate. As I said, there was a tremendous amount of concern about Rockefeller's fortune and the potential it held for conflicts of interest. And unlike Donald Trump, Nelson Rockefeller pledged to do whatever Congress suggested he should do to resolve the issues. Rockefeller released his tax returns, and he was ready to do a good deal more. Back to that CBS interview where reporters, including CBS's Connie Chung, remember her, pressed Senator Cannon for more details. How was this deal with Rockefeller going to work? And weren't there just a lot of questions? It does raise a a most serious uh, question in, in our minds, but how do you actually handle that? The Constitution doesn't say that a candidate for president or vice president must divest himself of all holdings that might possibly constitute a conflict of interest. Senator Cannon, in light of that, though, and following Watergate this period of time, do you think that Rockefeller should do something? I mean, is there nothing that he can do than make public his holdings? Well, uh, he has made the, the offer to us, to me personally, to do anything that the committee suggests. Now, we're going to consider whether it might be wise for him to establish a blind trust and put a lot of these holdings in the trust. Now, but even then, we, we have done still that. Finally, after four months of hearings and debate, Congress deemed Nelson Rockefeller's disclosure of his assets, his investments, adequate. He offered to do more, but it wasn't accepted. Rockefeller served two years as vice president, was dumped from Gerald Ford's ticket that lost to Jimmy Carter in 1976, and Rockefeller died under, well, let's say, unusual circumstances in 1979. I'll let Erwin Shemernsky, the UC Irvine Law School dean, sum up the lessons. Generally, we have laws that limit corruption and prevent conflicts of interest. And even though some of those don't apply to the president, what we're really talking about here is, will we have four years of scandal, of potential constitutional violations, or will we have a president who's above reproach? Emolument. Now let's return to that little constitutional matter as it might pertain to Donald J. Trump. There's a very simple explanation for why the Emoluments Clause was inserted by the framers of the Constitution. 
constitutional law scholar Dr. David Adler, now president of the Idaho-based Alturas Institute and a longtime law professor. Adler has written widely on the Constitution and why it says what it says. And I think it's worth noting that in so many areas of the framing of the Constitution, uh, the possibility of foreign corruption or influence and even bribery coursed through the discussions of the framers in the summer of 1787. It had, for example, influence on the allocation of power to the president, to the Senate, uh, to the House. It uh, very much influenced the framers' decision to create a treaty-making power that reflected uh, the efforts of both the president and the Senate on the theory that the more people involved, the more difficult it is to bribe uh, an officer of the United States. And so the bottom line is, is that this fear of corruption wound its way through the discussions in the convention, and the Emoluments Clause was viewed as a principal protection against the efforts by a foreign government uh, to influence or to bribe an officeholder of the United States. David Adler said the debates in the Constitutional Convention about what became Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8 were spirited and involved some of the most prominent men who eventually signed the Constitution— including Charles Pinckney of South Carolina, a future congressman, a diplomat, and a governor. Not a household name today, for sure, but Pinckney was one of the most influential drafters of the Constitution. He introduced what is known as the Emoluments Clause on August 23rd. It had the support of several framers, including including Elbridge Gerry, who was... uh, a New Englander who spoke his mind, uh, he spoke with candor on so many issues, and he effectively said to the convention, uh, look, we all know about the gifts that our ministers and ambassadors have received uh, from foreign governments. And he told the story about the fact that uh, when uh, various American ministers uh, serving during the period of the Articles of Confederation had dealt with King Louis XVI of France, uh, that, in fact, they received lavish gifts from King Louis, including uh, portraits. And uh, while it was uh, interesting and fun uh, and probably satisfying for both American ministers as well as ministers of other countries to receive a portrait of King Louis XVI, Jerry said, it's clear that they're not interested in the portrait. What drew their interest in receiving the portrait was the fact that it was surrounded uh, by large diamonds. And so ministers would would gratefully receive the gift, Jerry explained, and then in privacy they would rip the diamonds from the portrait and throw away the portrait. So there was really no secret about... uh, about the kinds of gifts being granted to American ministers and ambassadors, uh, and the question arose how to protect against that, uh, because there was this very real fear about foreign intrigue, foreign cabal, uh, foreign influence, and even uh, efforts to bribe American officials. And I might add uh, that, in fact, the concern about bribery also affected the framers' crafting of the impeachment clause. So in every way, shape, and form, this tremendous fear of uh, efforts by foreign governments to intervene in American foreign poli- in American affairs 
had a very uh, distinct and real impact on their writing of the Constitution. Diamond-encrusted picture frames. I'll just leave that image to hang there for a moment while I contemplate a president who's been living in a high-rise, gold-plated tower. Who says history doesn't have a way of connecting us with the present? Okay. Dr. Adler says the wording of the emoluments clause was lifted almost word for word from the earlier Articles of Confederation. That had been the governing document that preceded and was replaced by the Constitution, the Constitution that the President today swears to uphold and defend. The Founders also included the language that only Congress could authorize a government official to accept a gift, an issue that had arisen with the Articles of Confederation. Then Foreign Affairs Minister John Jay, who would effectively hold the position of Secretary of State today, uh, had uh, been given a horse by, by Prince Philip of Spain. Congress consented to that. Uh, John Adams had received a gold chain, uh, ambassadors and ministers uh, serving in various governments had received similarly small gifts, and Congress had granted its consent. So it's not an absolute prohibition, uh, but it's clear that it has to be a small gift, and even when it is a small gift, uh, Congress would uh, grant its consent or, or, in fact, prohibit the receipt of the gift. Donald Trump's lawyer, in essence, has discounted concerns about the emoluments clause. The Constitution does not require President-elect Trump to do anything here. But, just like with conflicts of interests, he wants to do more than what the Constitution requires. So President-elect Trump has decided, and we are announcing today, that he is going to voluntarily donate all profits from foreign government payments made to his hotels to the United States Treasury. This way, it is the American people who will profit. But constitutional scholar David Adler says the Trump camp is missing a critical point. The conflict that he has that creates an emoluments conflict is has everything to do with his continued ownership of these various businesses. Uh, and so the, so the business itself is going to continue to accrue value over time. Uh, and when you consider, for example, that uh, Bank of China uh, rents office space in the Trump Tower, and the Bank of China is owned by uh, the government of China, that creates an emoluments clause, uh, and so an emoluments clause problem. Uh, so I don't think that President-elect Trump has uh, done what he might do to avoid all the conflicts with the emoluments clause, and I think that when he comes into office on day one, those, claw, those uh, conflicts are going to be uh, very real. And, and we can say, I think, uh, with some uh, confidence that <clears throat> even though he has turned over the management of his uh, businesses to his two sons, that it's hard to believe that the foreign entities with which uh, his sons deal uh, are not going to be willing to pay a very high value, perhaps exceeding fair market value, whatever that might be in any instance, uh, so as to curry favor with the sons, which really means currying favor uh, with the president of the United States. And that would essentially constitute an emolument as well. And Erwin Shemernsky says there are countless ways the emoluments prohibition might play out in a Trump presidency. There's countless ways this could arise. 
Imagine that a foreign government is choosing between competitor hotels and choose the Trump Hotel over a Hilton or a Hyatt. That's a benefit. Or as simple as imagine the foreign government deciding where it's going to house dignitaries when they come to the country. And it chooses a Trump Hotel as opposed to a Hilton or a Hyatt. Or there was a widely reported incident where Trump was trying to convince those in Scotland not to build a building because it obstructed view from a Trump golf course. We can think of all the ways in which foreign governments might want to curry favor with the president of the United States, or even inadvertently do so. Okay, since we're talking about what the U.S. Constitution really says, we have to acknowledge that there is some competing interpretation around this emoluments clause. My name is Seth Barrett Tillman. I'm an American national. I teach law. I don't teach law in the United States. I teach law in Ireland at Manus University in the Department of Law. Law professor Seth Barrett Tillman argues that the founders didn't intend to apply the emoluments clause to elected officials. And he focuses on other words in Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8, that refer to the language about no person holding any office of profit or trust under the United States. I'll let him explain. My view is that office under the United States refers only to people who have appointed positions, or what you might call statutory positions, and it excludes all elected positions elected positions being members of Congress, president, vice president, federal elector, and uh, state, state positions, too. Now, if my reading is correct, then this clause doesn't even apply to the president, whether business transactions are emoluments or not. Professor Tillman argues with impressive passion, I might add, that the precedent established by the first president, the father of the country, the sainted George Washington, needs to factor heavily into whether the emoluments clause impacts Donald Trump or any other president, for that matter. Some people, when they're going to hear this, they're going to say, well, that's kind of counterintuitive. Why wouldn't the president be an officer under the United States? I mean, he has a position, right? And as a matter of the Constitution, even calls his position an office, albeit there's nowhere where it expressly says the president is an officer under the United States. But he works for the United States, so if he has an office and he works for the United States, you just put one and one together and you get two. He's an officer under the United States. There's something to that. This is the counterposition. If the president were an officer under the United States, we would expect when the first diplomatic gifts were given to our first president that he would have either given the gift to the United States, put it in the archives, or he wouldn't have accepted it, or he would have asked for a congressional consent when he accepted it. In fact, George Washington, our first president, received two diplomatic gifts. He received one from the Marquis de Lafayette, who was a French government official at the time, and he received a second from the French ambassador, both during his presidency. Both those gifts today are at display at Mount Vernon. One is the key to the Bastille, which he received from Lafayette. The other is a full-length portrait of King Louis XVI that is framed. And the frame is actually the more expensive part, not the, not the portrait. Uh, Washington accepted both gifts. He we even have a letter in Washington's hand where he uses the word, I accept the gifts. He kept the gifts. The gifts were known to the public because they were reported in the press. He never asked for congressional consent, and he never got congressional consent. Now, it seems to me that this is very powerful evidence that our first president didn't think this clause applied to him. 
Like the other constitutional scholars you've heard, Professor Tillman says the founders were profoundly concerned about foreign influence in American politics. But he argues their real focus was directed at the emissaries the country sent abroad to represent the United States. The narrow answer is that the essential object of this clause was to protect and insulate and to guarantee the good behavior of American ambassadors in the field, particularly just before they were recalled home at the end of their service, when they would receive expensive gifts from foreign monarchs. That was the stereotypical case that the founding fathers were familiar with when they actually wrote this particular clause. So yes, generally, they were very concerned with corruption. They were very concerned with the possibilities of foreign powers uh, intervening in any of a number of ways in American politics. Uh, But in regard to this clause, the, the key thing they were trying to control was ambassadors. Well, it wouldn't be the U.S. Constitution without a debate about just what it means. Isn't that right, Professor Erwin Chemerinsky? I'll be blunt. I think it's a silly argument. Um, the Emoluments Clause is written very broadly about any person who holds office trust at the United States. The Office of Legal Counsel has issued opinions that explicitly say the president and the vice president are covered. And in fact, it's easy to understand why the clause has to be understood that way. It was written at a time when there was great fear that foreign nations would have undue influence over a fledgling nation. Above all, they'd want to make sure that the president and the vice president weren't influenced by a foreign government. So clearly, we're not going to settle this debate here. And so far, Donald Trump appears content to essentially say it's not going to be an issue. Who knows how it will be settled? Perhaps the Supreme Court will decide about the Emoluments Clause one day. Of this much, I'm sure. At least the Emoluments Clause, back to Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8, At least that debate has got us around to talking about George Washington and Donald Trump in the same sentence. Just for the sake of the argument, let's assume for a moment that the President of the United States does violate the Constitution with regard to the Emoluments Clause. What's the remedy? It's a great question, and since this is an unprecedented situation, no one really knows. I think there can be and will be civil suits against Trump saying he's violating the Constitution. The question then is, who has standing to sue? What remedy can a court impose? I think there's the possibility if the violations become egregious and embarrassing to the country, there could be impeachment resolutions brought. Um, Again, I'm not saying he's likely to be impeached, but that's of course, one remedy available. Dr. Adler agrees that a private individual bringing a lawsuit will be problematic, since establishing an individual harm as a result of a constitutional violation may be very difficult. Congress could use the power of the purse to deny funding for a key Trump administration initiative, that's certainly been done before, in order to force him to comply. Or Congress does have the power contained in Article 1, Sections 2 and 3 of the Constitution, check that pocket edition, to impeach the president. Not very likely, absent a huge and very public controversy. So the remedies, as I say, are few and far between. uh, And I think that there's already indication that President-elect Trump is the sort who's going to push the envelope at at every opportunity. uh, And in effect, even if in a showdown, 
the president might just dare Congress uh, to take measures to uh, to try to hem him in, uh, and that would that would be quite a spectacle to observe. Indeed, that would be quite a spectacle to observe. You know, there's one thing about the American political system. While we do have plenty of laws, rules, and constitutional provisions that cover a lot of territory, the whole thing has worked for nearly 250 years, with a few notable exceptions, because of often informal agreements that presidents and other officials agree to, informal agreements that require a certain reverence for precedent, a regard for tradition, acceptance of certain norms of behavior in public life. You wonder what might have happened, for example, had Richard Nixon refused the order of the U.S. Supreme Court to hand over the tape recordings that implicated the president in the Watergate cover-up. The court doesn't have a cop to send down to the White House to grab the goods. The president had to agree. For the system to work, there must be respect among the institutions of government. Without it, The Constitution is really just a musty old document. The head of the Office of Government Ethics, Walter Schaub, gets the last word here. He asks a very good question. During his recent appearance at the Brookings Institution, Walter Schwab quoted a Supreme Court opinion of some years ago about the critical importance in a democratic society of avoiding even the appearance of a conflict of interest and avoiding the idea that some outside financial interest might influence a president's decision. Back when he was working for the Department of Justice, the late Antonin Scalia also wrote an opinion declaring that a president should avoid engaging in conduct prohibited by the government's ethics regulations, even if they don't apply. Justice Scalia warned us that there would be consequences if a president ever failed to adhere to the same standards that apply to lower-level officials. The sheer obviousness of Scalia's words become apparent if you just ask yourself one question— Should a president hold himself to a lower standard than his own appointees? My great thanks to the constitutional scholars who shared their perspectives on this episode. Erwin Shemernsky's latest book is called The Case Against the Supreme Court. It was published by Viking in 2014. He is a prolific author with two books coming out this year. Among David Adler's many scholarly works is The Constitution and the Conduct of American Foreign Policy, published by the University of Kansas Press. And Seth Barrett Tillman has written extensively on corporate and constitutional law, including advancing his theories about the Emoluments Clause long before it became an issue with Donald Trump. I want to acknowledge the Brookings Institution for the audio of the Director of the Office of Government Ethics. Many Things Considered is produced with support from Gallatin Public Affairs, operating for more than 25 years at the intersection of business, politics, the media, and government in the Pacific Northwest and beyond, on the web at gallatinpublicaffairs.com. Episodes of Many Things Considered are available on iTunes, Stitcher, pretty much wherever you find your podcasts, also on the Gallatin website. Spread the word and be in touch if you have questions, observations, or suggestions. We love to hear from you with your take on our history and our politics. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Mark Johnson.